Find your places in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts chapter 4. So good to be in God's house. I can just imagine the feeling that you guys have when you come to church and, you know, it's not been announced that I'm preaching and you see that my dad's not preaching. It's a lot like I felt the day that uh, I went to the Ranger game and Ian Kinsler was out of the, the lineup, you know, it's like, and Adrian Gonzalez is playing second. What? I got robbed, man. I paid money for these tickets. I don't even get to see Ian lead off, man. That's terrible. So I can just imagine how y'all feel this morning as, you know, all stars up there preaching in Brother Adam's church and now they called up the single A call up. We just skip three levels. I'm here now. But that's all right. It's good. We'll try hard this morning. Um, but seriously, we do need to pray. Uh, be in major prayer because our rangers stink right now. Um, and it is a matter of prayer. I believe God cares about those things we care about. So uh, uh, it's getting difficult to watch. So please be in prayer for that. There's a prayer meeting tonight at 6.30, I believe. So. Or six o'clock, so that'll be good for us to gather around the throne and pray for you, Darvish, and all those other guys. So that's good. Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts chapter 4. Did you, did you get the you? The pray for you? I'm I just making sure. I didn't get any laughs there. I just think it's funny that his name is you. And there's a lot of comedy that can come from that. So be with you, Darvish. <laughs> Acts chapter 4 this morning, sorry. I didn't study, so we're just winging it. That's why I'm making ranger comedy, that's good. Acts chapter 4 and verse 23, the Bible says, And being let go, they went to their own company, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine vain things. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, And the Gentiles and all the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak with thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us now as we will not be long today, but I pray that we would be effective. Father, I pray that your spirit would come upon this service and I pray that irregardless of the time that we would all be willing to hear a message from you. May your word be powerful. May it be quick this morning and may it be sharper than the two-edged sword that you promise in your word. Lord, I pray that you'd bless this morning. It's in your son's name I do pray. Amen. 
Now we pick up right in the middle of our story as we began reading this morning. Basically in the context of this passage, what's happened is, Peter has now, great things are taking place in the church. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost takes place. In Acts chapter 3, a man is healed and great miracles are taking place. But as great miracles and success come in the church, also comes great persecution. And so right here what's happened is, just in the earlier part of chapter 4, the high priests and the fellowship of the high priests and everybody that's a big wig in the religious uh, sectors of the church, or actually the religion of this day, they're all standing there and they're wondering what they're going to do. So they bind Peter and they bring him in. And basically they tell him, Peter, you can't talk in this name of Jesus anymore. You've got great miracles, albeit I see the man that's healed, but I don't want to hear this anymore. So what they do is, they begin to threaten them. And I love Peter's response, and you can take time to read it in Acts chapter 4. He just pretty much tells them, I cannot but preach and speak of the things that I've seen and heard. Man, God's been so good. I've seen great miracles. I've seen great power. It's awesome, man. I cannot but tell what the Lord is doing. And I absolutely love that. But as Peter comes back to tell the church or his company what is taking place, there is a little bit of genuine concern. I mean, he comes back and as we find out, they were all gathered together and how Peter comes back and he tells them, look guys, the Lord's doing great works. We've seen 3,000 saved at the day of Pentecost. And in this chapter alone, we've seen 5,000 more saved. We're so excited about it, but there are threatenings. We don't know what these people can do. We know they're powerful. But guys, they're threatening us. They might take our homes. They might take our families. They may kill us. Be aware of it. And I love what the church begins to do. Now, I was not a great child growing up, especially in school and stuff. I was very uh, energetic in class. There are some of my teachers that are in this building today that taught me in high school And they're affected. They've tried sending the psychiatry bills to me. I've not responded. The collection agency's knocking at my door. I'm telling you, I was a bad student when I was in high school. And and basically what it was is I was so prideful that when I got caught talking or doing something wrong, I mean, I was like, no, it's not that big a deal. And they would obviously have to go to the point of, well, Andrew, you have to go to the office. And so for like the next seven steps out of the classroom, I still had to retain my pride, right? All my classmates are watching. So I'm going to the office. And inside I am very scared and intimidated about what's happening because my dad literally runs the whole show. And I'm going to get in so much trouble, it's unreal. And so I'm like, the office, no big deal. I'll go there like three times a week. Me and the principal hang out and stuff. As soon as the door closes, I'm like, oh, no, man, this is really bad. I was an idiot, man. That was stupid, man. Come on. Andrew, get in the game. What are you doing now? Right? That's, that's how I was. I was a bad kid, not because of choice. I just, I was, an, I was moronic in high school. So there were de- different levels of punishment. You know, the first was like the verbal warning. Like, Andrew, you need to stop. Some teachers, depending on the day, just skipped right over like three warnings. <laughs> Like, whoa, I didn't, I just said I love Jesus, you know. You didn't raise your hand, you know. There were those days, but 
overall, I was the problem. My mom's like dying laughing right now. She's like, so basically, but the worst punishment was not the office. The worst punishment was standing in the corner. The office I can handle. Because, you know, I can talk. You know, the principal's like, what were you doing? Well, it was not the smartest thing. (laughs) Probably, she's probably right, I'm probably wrong. I avoided the call to my dad and my mom most of the time, so that worked out well. They honestly think I only went to the office like twice. (laughs) That's a joke! (laughs) I was there all the time. We were tight. Miss, Miss Diane, Brother Roy, we, we were close. But the worst punishment by far was the corner. And I don't understand the idea of the corner. I mean, are you trying to embarrass me into being good? It's like, you know, all your classmates are in the room, right? You got all your peers. You've talked out loud, so now you have to go stand with the not prettier side of you facing the room, your nose is in a corner that you're three inches away from the wall. I did not understand the corner. But albeit it was very effective. I never saw anybody get sent to the corner and continue to talk. Have you ever noticed that? You go to the corner and you're standing there, Oh, this is really stupid. This really, I do not like this. But you're not talking out loud. Because you still, you know, for me, it was retaining my pride. <laughs> the corner. You know, because I wasn't out of the room yet. But the corner embarrassed people into being good. It embarrassed me into being silent. <laughs> but the world has put us in the corner as the church. They have stuck our noses right in the corner. And we have ceased talking. Our message is so great. It is so marvelous. In fact, it has impacted lives in this room like you would never imagine. It's so great. And the embarrassment of the corner has shut us up. It really has. And you may think I'm taking this out of context. You may think I'm stretching something a little bit. But why else do we not tell the story of Jesus? If not for fear and embarrassment. Fear of persecution. Fear of separation. We are so afraid of it. But that's exactly what's happened here. Is This church understands. And Peter comes back and he says, Look guys, we may have to face some things. So let's lay out a game plan on how we're going to get rid of this persecution, how we're going to deal with this condemnation, how we're going to deal with it all. So let's take a look at three principles of dealing with a muzzling of our message. First of all, we have to pray for help. And that's exactly what happens. In verse 17 and 18, what these people tell Peter is, this is them telling him, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they... Speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. In verse 21, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. 
They threaten these people. They tell them everything's bad. They tell, you know, do not speak in this name. We will be forced to do things we don't want to do. Do not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter goes back. He tells his friends. He tells his companion. He tells the local church. This is what they said. They, they said they're threatening us. I don't even know what they were saying, but could you imagine being threatened with your life? Could you imagine being threatened with your home and your family being in danger? And that's what's going on. And so the very first thing, and you cannot remove this from the story, they come back and they seek the Lord's face in prayer. In, right here in verse 29, they say, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness that we may speak thy word. This world absolutely hates our message. It's just a fact. Public figures like Josh Hamilton and Tim Tebow are persecuted. They are torn down at the kneecaps because of what they believe. I listen to sports radio and men insult Baptists. They they talk about the church. They talk about religion. They talk about how Josh Hamilton has his faith. They're tearing him down. And they don't want to hear our message. And they threaten us with ostracism, by separating from us, by telling us we're no good, by telling us to just keep our own ideas and our own opinions and allow us to live how we want to live, they tell us to be quiet. And that's exactly what's happening here. But what Peter does is he goes back and he says, may we pray about it. What are they going to pray for, though? First of all, they pray for boldness. In verse 29, you see that. And grant unto thy servants that we may with boldness that we may speak. How I love to be able to stand up and preach in front of you. It is my pleasure. It is my privilege. I enjoy it so much. The Lord's called me to do it. And every time I stand up to preach, I thank the Lord for His calling. I thank the Lord that when I stand up here, it's not just me preaching, but I'm speaking His Word. Because honestly, folks, I have nothing to offer you. I'm not that intelligent. I'm not that well-versed in society and culture. I don't have that many great stories. But I do know one thing, that when I stand up here, I have the Word of God. And I know that when my dad stands up here, he's not the most intelligent man, but he sure knows this book. And he's able to preach this book. And a lot of people get mad or offended at the way my dad and I present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you're yelling the whole time. You're, You're in my face. But I preach with boldness. I don't preach my words. If I ever begin to preach my words, please tell somebody, please remove yourself from my presence. Because my goal is to never teach you my words, to teach you my doctrine. The Lord Jesus Christ has called me to preach His book. And that's the only way that I can stand up here and tell a sinner that he needs to repent. Because I can't tell him that I'm better than him because I promise you I'm not. I can't tell him that I have more life experience or that I can give him something. I don't have anything to offer you. But I know that the Lord Jesus Christ does. And as we go out and as we hit the streets and as we live each and every day in our jobs and our, our families... We have to preach with boldness the Lord Jesus Christ. We sit to eat lunch and we bow our head to pray and we say these three word prayers so that nobody sees us. That's not boldness. It it is to the point now where if you mention Jesus in a public place, people start leaving. 
Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul understood that I can't be ashamed of the message that has changed my life. The people that will impact this world for the Lord Jesus Christ are the people that have been impacted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, as we stand in this room especially, and we sing the praises of our Lord, and as we sit here and we amen with the best of them, it's easy here. But when people are telling us that we're unpopular, that they'll remove themselves from from us, that, that we'll be unpopular, that we won't be the guy that everybody comes to for friendship. We just kind of cower down. And we just kind of don't say Jesus' name. I don't understand how a Christian can remove Christ from any of their life. On the, on the workplace, man, I don't see how somebody doesn't get in your truck and hear some southern gospel music. I don't see how somebody could not know you're a Christian. How does something as big and as powerful as the Lord Jesus Christ change you and nobody notice? They understood the persecution. They understood the threatenings. But they said, Lord, help us be bold. But notice that there was a little fear in them. I am such a fan of Peter because he reminds me so much of me. Because he's moronic at times, right? He says things when he should never, ever say them. But Peter, in the book of Acts, becomes this super powerful Christian, especially preacher. You can read some of his sermons and they're just with power. But he comes back and he's begging the Lord that he would not cower down. He says, Lord, please give us boldness to preach thy word. You know why I think he did that? It's because Peter had experience cowering. Remember the night that Christ was being delivered up to the cross? And they're all standing. I don't know why, but for some reason I picture Peter. And it could be I've seen a picture or something like this. But I, in my mind's eye, I have Peter standing around a fire. And I have him, just in my mind, I picture Peter warming himself with a group of other people. And as Jesus has already told him what's going to happen that night, he's watching this all take place. And somebody immediately to his right says, Hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you with him? And y'all all know the rest of the story. Peter begins to say, I don't know that guy. I, I'm not. No, your speech. Your speech, it berates you. It, it, it tells on you. You're talking like one of them. So what he does is he begins to curse like the world, does he not? He says, oh, my, it's my speech that's doing it. You re- well, well, beep that. You see, Peter, Peter had already cowered down once. The temptation is to cower. You know what's scary about sharing your faith? It's It's on a whole different level than anything else. Nothing else matters as much as your faith. For instance, if I'm selling an insurance policy, 
I can go up to that person and say, hey, this is really good. If I get rejected, they can probably live without insurance. But if somebody, <laughs> amen, Brother Santa, that is so funny because your wife sells insurance. That is great. I don't know if y'all knew that. That is just great. But if somebody rejects my faith, it hurts me because I know where they're headed. It's important that I don't know why we feel like we should be so eloquent with our faith, you know, that we should be so well versed and all that. But I think it's because we know so much is riding on it. I mean, this 15 minutes I have to share the gospel with somebody has an impact on their eternity. And so, yes, I would say that as preachers stand up, oh, we ought not be ashamed. We ought to be bold. Yes, but there will be some intimidation. But Peter knew he had already failed at this once. And so what he did is he said, the first time I did it in my own power, he said, Lord, I'll never betray thee. I'll die for you just before that. He was doing it in his own power. But Peter knew this time he ought to call on God's help. And see, as we're, if we're going to be effective witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, He better get in on this thing. I don't know about you, but did you ever watch any wrestling? Not like the actual wrestling, like the fake, that guy did not punch that guy wrestling. I, I watched it when I was younger. My mom hated it, but I watched it. And she always, every time I was watching, Andrew, I don't know why you watch that. That's so fake. Really? That guy just jumped two stories onto a table. It's an optical illusion. Sure, it's fake. No, it, I loved watching it. But there was always like these unwritten rules that I didn't understand. Like one of the rules, and you may not know what I'm talking about, but they can fight outside the ring as long as they want. What's the ring for? What's the referee there for? Other than to count three. But the main thing I did not understand was like the tag team matches. Because one guy, and it always plays out just like this. One guy is getting whipped up on. Right? He's in like this crazy headlock. He's about to go to sleep. The referee's standing there. Doing nothing. But this one guy, he's like, he's going to sleep. And his partner is on the ring going, Touch my hand! Come on! And the guy's like falling asleep. Oh. oh, and he throws his hand up there and he touches it. He tag teams. And so for the next minute and a half, the other partner gets up and he just starts beating on the guy. But the other guy that was asleep doesn't get out of the ring. They both beat on the other guy. Y- y'all know what I'm talking about? They, it's like a two-team. There's no rule on it, but for 45 seconds, both of them can beat up on that guy. I would understand it if one of them got out of the ring, right? Like, oh, I tapped. I can't touch him now or we're disqualified. No! They're both just like kicking the dude. And the referee... One, two... No! Didn't understand that. But the one thing I did know is before that guy was getting his rear end whipped and once he touches his partner's hand, he wasn't anymore. He was winning. 
We need to get in a tag team match with the Lord. The reason this church is not being as effective evangelistically as we ought to be is probably because we haven't touched the Lord's hand lately. The reason that we fail so miserably and how there's so many seats empty in this church is because we've not touched the Lord's hand. Peter understood, I've failed before. I've been there. I've felt the shame. I've felt the disgrace of denying the Lord. And when I was under severe persecution and I didn't know what was going to happen, I said, I don't know him. Lord, this time may it be different. This time may you help me. Lord, empower me to be a bold witness for you. What's the last time you prayed something similar to that? Are you being a bold witness? Have you prayed for it lately? You see, the reason we're not good witnesses is we don't ask the Lord to make us good witnesses. How are we going to do anything for this world? And we're so good at prettying up and not necessarily acting better than the world, but just, you know, I have purpose to live, but not ever, ever sharing that. Whether it be for fear, intimidation, I don't know what it is. Those things all come into play. But may we ask the Lord to just make us bold Christians. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and a sound mind. That we may be witnesses for Him, my friends. Christian, we cower down at this world's muzzle. We allow ourselves to just think they don't want to hear our message. May we be bold witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did they pray for boldness, they prayed for healing. In verse 30, the Bible says, By stretching forth thine hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done in thy name of thy holy child, Jesus. Let me ask you something. Is it scriptural to pray for the lost? I began to search out. Please take your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Hold your place there in Acts, but... In Romans chapter 10, there could be several dozen other places, but I know this is the one that I found. Is it scriptural to pray for the lost? Romans chapter 10, Paul says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. What you have there is Paul praying for the salvation of his countrymen. But this is what I thought interesting in verse 2. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What I find interesting in this passage is, Paul pretty much tells us who who he's targeting in his evangelism. He was not targeting the, I want to be careful here, he was not targeting the Pharisee that had no apparent uh, desire to turn to God. He was targeting, targeting those people that loved God, that wanted to know God, they were just confused about God. Paul said they had a zeal for God. They were wanting to know more about God, but yet they just didn't know how to do it. And I'm telling you, we think that every person outside these doors is a staunch atheist. That is simply not true. 
There are so many people that are confused about very little things. You ask most people if they're on their way to heaven, if they're 100% sure or anywhere on a scale from 0 to 100, almost all of them who have Christian on their Facebook would say 98% sure. They're just confused. Paul understood his countrymen had a zeal for God and they were trying to go. They were living good, good lives. They were establishing their own righteousness. But we all know in this building, not of our righteousness, lest any man should boast, but it's the Lord that saves us. The Lord said that we could not do anything to find our way to heaven. Right. Amen. Amen. I believe our countrymen are very similar. I believe the people outside these walls As I went door knocking last week and the week before, I talked to people that had been scarred from church that were just confused. Good people! People probably better than me. And they just don't know. You see, we approach every person. We sit beside someone on the plane and the Lord convicts us, you know, you need to witness to this person. Well, they're probably like president of the Atheists Anonymous Club. Right? I don't even know if that's a real thing. I just made that up. But we're so afraid that everybody's going to be in staunch rejection of us. And Paul knew that was not the truth. He says, my countrymen love God. They're just confused. You see, we don't tell people, and one day they're going to stand at the throne of God, and they're going to say, Lord, I tried living as good as I could. I just did not know the appropriate way. I didn't know that your son died for me. And there are going to be great people that will be sent to hell. And they're so close to us. And we're so intimidated that they're going to be... They're they're just going to remove themselves from our company. If we ever mention anything about Jesus dying for their sins. And we're so afraid... That good people who are trying to live good lives so that they can earn their way to heaven, which is a terrible failure. And we're too afraid to tell that person, it's not of anything you can do, but it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that saves you. So many people would gladly receive that knowledge. I, I truly believe many, many people would hear that message and get saved. You know, the most interesting thing to me is just about eight to nine out of ten people that I have ever witnessed to and led to the Lord just didn't understand it. I mean, before, it's like a light bulb clicks. It's like, you mean to tell me the Bible says that? That is unbelievable that Jesus died for me. Those people just want to know the truth. The truth is that Jesus died for everyone's sins and it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, how long you were there, Jesus loves you. And Jesus came to this earth and main, in the manger of Bethlehem and died on the cross at Calvary for your sins so that you could be saved. Amen. And we're intimidated to tell people that message. I understand fear. Peter had it. But may we be bold. May we pray for those people that they would be saved, that we would be effective witnesses, and that the Lord would make an impact in the lives of this community. I was reading a story recently of a man that prayed every single morning, Lord, 
Please show me a sign if you want me to witness to someone. This same man was on a bus one day and as he got on at one stop, the bus went around town, picked up another man. This man got on the bus that was extremely large. He had tattoos everywhere. He had a piercing here, tattoos. The man just looked rough. Obviously, he's a bigger man, smaller bus seats. This man did not want him sitting by him, but the man came. The whole bus was empty, and this larger man sat right next to this skinny little Christian. The Christian, very intimidated, just kind of looked out the window, crossed his hands in his lap. And the large man began to weep and to cry aloud. And he said, I need to be saved. And I need someone to show me. And he turns over to this young man and he says, Christian, can you show me how to be saved? Immediately the Christian bows his head and closes his eyes and says, Lord, is this a sign? (laughs) Isn't that similar to how we are? I mean, we pass people every day who are going through divorces who are going through financial crisis, who really and truly need direction. And although they may not know it, they are crying out for help with the checks they're writing to psychiatrists and and the help they're trying to get when every answer is found in this book and it's all found through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we sit idly by and ask the Lord for signs and, and we ask Him to make us better witnesses. May we just get on the horse and go do it, man. May we, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, just approach people and tell them of the good news. Not only do we need to pray for help, but I believe in this passage we find an example of a perfect heart. In verse 32, the Bible says this, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. It's hard to read that without seeing that everything that they had, they were all in common. I mean, you look at these people, and I just cannot even begin to wrap my mind around this, but these people, as they got saved, and we see it, uh, an example of it earlier in this same book, as people get saved, they sell off all their goods. They sell off their land. They sell off their houses. They sell off all, everything that's valuable to them. And they basically began this communal living. And they say, Brother Jim, you have need? You need a bow fishing boat? I will, get, I will pay for you a bow fishing boat. Just kidding, everyone. I'm not going to do that. You can just go with me, okay? Sound good? On the SS Sinking Minnow. It's actually the wiggling arrow. If you want to know what that means, come up to me later and I'll tell you. Okay, I'll tell you now. You shoot a fish, a lot of times because of the mud and everything, you don't know if you get the fish. But normally there's the arrow sticking out of the water. And if the arrow wiggles, you know you got the fish. That's why my boat's the SS Wiggling Arrow, right? There you go. That is not doctrinal at all. Sorry I'm chasing rabbits this morning, Miss Mary. I really apologize for that. She told me this morning not to chase rabbits. And when you're threatened by that lady, she makes some good desserts. You just do it. All right? But as Paul, I don't even know where I'm at now. I'm talking about minnows and wiggling arrows. Basically, as Peter tells 
tells them about this threatening, the one thing that happens is the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. This group of people who are just as diversely different as people in this room. Just as some people were poor and some people are rich. Just as some people had good jobs and other people didn't have jobs. Just as some people were pretty and some people were ugly. A vast majority of us are probably more towards the ugly side. But that, Amen, Brother Doug. But what happens is, all these people, all these people decide that the cause of Christ is worth giving everything they have. And this is not a shallow, oh, I give everything to Jesus, all to Him I owe. No, it's not that. It's, I'm selling my house so that the cause of Christ may be advanced. Now, do I believe that communal living is probably the way to go? Do I believe that I need to sell everything I have, which is very little, to help Brother Jim finance his bow fishing boat? No, I don't believe that. But I believe there's a principle here. That if the church unified for the cause of Christ, and that if we all rallied behind the love of God, people would come and see this church. I cannot speak on this. For some reason, the uh, youth department curriculum is talking about, uh, we're in the book of Acts, it's talking about this right now. And I cannot, when I see a verse like this that talks about everybody giving everything and how people will be attracted to the unified cause, I cannot help but think of Brother Dan Mulvey. Many of you may not remember him, but he came to church to listen to the band. He, He came and he was actually going to start playing in the band. My dad and I went up to go visit him in the surgery. I was not able to see him. My dad had already been up earlier. and It's just a very simple surgery. And this man was so excited about church. He had just joined. Walked in. My dad said, he told him, he was just happy to finally be a part of something. He's happy to be a part of this church. Brother Dan died as a result of that surgery. I have this picture on my wall in my office just to remind me. People come for the love of this church. And what's so sad is, especially Baptists for some reason, have this reputation of being backbiters and gossipers. We have this reputation of tearing our own men and women down. I promise you nobody wants to be a part of that. When I was in Godly, I did not stay in Godly uh, elementary very long. I only stayed to the fifth grade. But there was definitely different groups in Godly. There was the nerdy kids, even at five years old, I mean, or fifth grade. I mean, this is what you saw. There was the nerdy group of kids that didn't shower. <laughs> I wish I were joking. There were the band kids, and band was actually very big at Godly, so... There were the band kids, but there was the athletic and what I called cool group. I always wanted to be a part of the cool group. And I knew what those guys stood for was wrong. And everything I heard on Sunday and Wednesday and everything that I had happened to me at my house, uh, I knew what they were doing was wrong, but I went to them anyway. At fifth grade, I was already thinking thoughts I should have never thought as a fifth grader. I was already saying things that should have never even been heard by ears that were 18 years old. I was already saying those things because I wanted to be a part of the cool group. You know why? 
It's because they had friends. Inside of each and every one of us is this, the desire to be liked. The desire to be a part of something. And I knew and I knew what they were was wrong. And yet I still went and I still became their friend and I still joined that popular group just so I could have friends. You know why people come to this church? Because people need to be loved. There are so many enemies outside the walls of this church for us. It is unbelievable. And yet we come to church and we still have enemies inside these walls. I really believe it breaks God's heart that Christians in this church would not talk to other Christians. I pray that we would just rally behind the love of Christ because we've all been forgiven, amen? Amen. That we would just forgive each one. You know what Christ says? A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. This is as he's passing off the scene. He says, love one another so much that it looks weird. Everybody will take note. And those people that are hurting, those people that need help, those people that need love, they'll come. And they'll get to know Christ, not because of our effective witnessing or evangelism, but because we love each other. And that they know they come in these doors, they will not be torn down. They will not be made fun of. They will not be ostracized, but they would be part of something bigger than them. You can sit here and you can tell me what you see in this passage, but there is definitely prayer for God to help them in this cause. And there was a perfect unified heart in this passage that everybody could rally behind and people and men and women took note of that perfect heart. Not only do we see this, but finally look with me if you will. We see a power from Him. you got to notice that they prayed for His help. They were full of the Holy Spirit. They were unified in cause. And this is what happens as a result. In verse 31, the Bible says this. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. Boy, that's what we need, some some earth-shaking prayers. Amen. We need some powerful prayers. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the Word of God with boldness. This was a divine empowering for these people, that they would be able to go out, and they would be able to witness and evangelize effectively with God's power on their life. I don't know about you, but I'm not much of a reader. I read my Bible... And the Newberg Report, which is the Rangers emailer thing. So I don't know much about literature. My wife, however, does. My wife read a lot when she was in high school. And I tried getting her to read more now because she loves reading. She has the Kindle thing and I'll stick with my iPad and play Angry Birds all day, okay? (laughs) But like things will come on TV. It's just, oh, that's such a good book. I love that book. That, that is a great author. I have no clue what she's talking about. Like, she is a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan, which I think is a little weird, because the guy was a nut. Did not know much about him before I married her, but now she tells me he's writing things that are crazy. That's what I'm married to. A man who kills a man and sticks him under the floorboards. It's a little weird. Amen? 
Just saying. But every time she brings something about literature up, I just kind of don't talk. Because I don't know what to talk about. She's like, mm, that, give me an author. What's one author? Not Edgar Allan Poe. What's another author? There's that woman you were reading the other day. That one you like the book? The, Mary Higgins Clark. Oh, yeah, everybody knows her now. I'm the only moron in the building. Sure. Thanks, Brother Pickett. I got a hand gesture from him there. He's like, praise the Lord. Okay. But she talks to me about this Mary Higgins Clark woman. And she reads a book in two days, which I thought was impossible. By the way, you could still return a book after 70, or before 72 hours at Walmart. So you read another book, two hours, take it back. I know that because I bought a book, had to take it back, and I took it back a week later, and they're like, 72-hour return policy. What? I didn't read it, I promise. <laughs> Just saying. But my wife sits here and she says, Oh, I love Mary Higgins Clark. I'm like... Yeah, me too. <laughs> she just knows how to write to my level. Yes, she does. <laughs> hey, baseball's on. All right. Yes, okay. Ian Kinsler's out. What? You know. <laughs> I have no clue what to talk about when it comes to literature. Because, like, I, I know briefly some of the Edgar Allan Poe stuff she's told me about. I don't know anything about Mary Higgins Clark other than she reads a book of hers in two days. That's it. I don't know much about literature at all. I read Shiloh and I tested well on Shiloh's season because the books are pretty much the exact same. Other than that, I don't read. What I'm trying to say is, I can't tell you very much about literature because I know nothing about literature. How can I speak the word of God boldly? If I am ignorant when it comes to what that book says. You see conversation of cars comes up. I just kind of stop talking. They're like that thing's got a 674 big block in it. I thought most things were cylindrical on cars. I don't know. That wasn't funny. I'm sorry. But I can't talk about cars because I don't know cars. You ask me about bow fishing, you ask me about any athletic sport, you ask, except lacrosse, you ask me about anything like that, hunting, fishing, I know that. You ask me about that book, I'll try my very best to give you an answer. But we have Christians that want to be good witnesses, that are good people, that are living for the Lord, that just don't know that book. And I'm sorry to say this, but we don't have a course on it. You just need to get in the Word of God, learn the Romans road so that you can be an effective witness. If you can't show somebody where Jesus Christ died for their sins, how are you going to witness? They were empowered, but they spoke the Word of God boldly because they knew the Word of God. The Bible says, study to show thyself approved. A workman unto God needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Rightly dividing the Word of truth. You can decide what this passage means and you can pass that on to someone else. How are we going to be effective witnesses? How are we going to evangelize this world if we know nothing? You know what scary is? 
Mormons and Muslims know their book. You ask a Mormon anything about his religion, he'll tell you. And yet Christians, we... Well, John 3.16 says, come on. The Bible's very clear. This is the Word of God. This is His breath that He gave us. Men and women have died for this book and we're too afraid to study it and learn what it says. You cannot be an effective witness without that book. Because I have nothing to offer you in my preaching, but you have nothing to offer them in your evangelism without this book. Not only... Not only were they powerful in word, but they were powerful in their witness. This is what I found very interesting, and I am done. In verse 33, the Bible says this. And with great power gave the apostles... What's the next word? Witness. Witness. Now, you may think that I am completely ignorant, but until yesterday, I had never put this together. What does the word witness mean? I'll tell you what it means. To see... Hear or know by personal presence and perception. You see, I don't know why, but sometimes we, we separate Christian words and secular words. I did not imagine witnessing on the, in, in a court was the same as witnessing in the Bible, but it is. I see Brother Jim steal my bow fishing boat. I'm just kidding. That, that didn't happen. But if I see him take my bow fishing boat, I am a witness of that, right? So I go to court to witness of the act that he's done, right? Now, what do we do in Christianity? We are witnesses of the Lord, what he's done in our life, right? The Lord has made an impact in our own life. The Lord has changed our own life. It has healed our homes. It has healed our marriages. It has changed us completely. All we do when we go out is tell people about that. You see, the most powerful tool you have in your arsenal of evangelism is your testimony. Because I can tell what the Lord did for Paul. I can tell what the Lord did for Peter. I can tell what he did for David. But until that person that I am witnessing to understands that God made an impact in my life. He changed me completely. He made me a new man when I wanted to be the old man. He changed me. So as I sit down with a man. And I go to take him through the word of God. And I say, you see, the Bible says this in John three sixteen, For God so loved, and in my Bible I have the world marked out. And I have Andrew right there. And I say, for God so loved Andrew. And the other day I had the honor and privilege to lead a man named Fred to the Lord. And I took that Bible and I said, you see, right here. For God so loved Andrew, but he also loved Fred. And he loved you so much. God's done so much for me, Fred. He can do a lot for you. He died for you. The most, if, the most important thing you have is what God's done for you. Oh, my friends, God's done so much for us. He gave us a church home, but He gave us a future. Where we had no ability within ourselves to save ourselves. Whether or not we were the best person on the earth or not, God loved us even though our righteousness were filthy rags to Him. Even though the very best thing we did did not earn respect or honor with God. We were enmity with God. We were enemies of God. We were spiritually separated from God. And yet, He loved us enough to die for us. What has He done for you? 
tell them. Tell them. You may not know exactly where to show somebody why we don't speak in tongues. That doesn't matter. Tell them what he's done for you. You may not be able to find exactly where Jesus was virgin born. Tell them what he's done for you. Because that person that you're witnessing to cares much less about how this church runs than what he's done for you. My friends, God loves us. And he's ready to empower us. He's ready to help us. And he's ready for us to knock down this wall of this world telling us, you can't evangelize me. I am impenetrable. He's ready for us to take off the muzzle. And all we have to do is ask for his help. All we have to do is pray for some sinners and go with his power and win some lost people to the Lord. In 1985, a celebration took place at a public pool in New Orleans. The celebration was to celebrate a, the, uh, the first year in the known history of New Orleans that nobody had died at a public pool. With 200 certified lifeguards on hand celebrating and three lifeguards actually at the pool uh, facilitating the event. As they began to clear the pool, they found a man in the deep end of the pool, fully clothed. And as they tried to revive him, they could not. The man died surrounded by men and women that were able to save him and just did not pay attention to the need. I'm so thankful that we live in a country, one nation under God. I'm thankful that he blesses this nation when he should not. I'm thankful that we have the opportunity to meet each week in a church that is true to the doctrines of the Word of God. I'm thankful for y'all, that you are my friends. But if we're not careful, we will allow people to fall into hell in the nation of the land of the free and the home of the brave. In the nation with churches on just about every corner. If we're not careful, people are going to be sending missionaries to our country. Don't allow yourself to be muzzled by this world's shaming and their persecution and their threatenings. As they threatened Peter, he said, Lord, give us boldness, give us power, and may we witness to them. Thousands and thousands were saved. The only thing that's changed in this story is the people. Because God's still the same. The message is still the same. What are we doing? Me and my wife were in an argument the other day. We were, it's not really an argument. We talk about doctrinal things. We talk about scripture. I am very weird on some of the like, way I interpret verses. But I read a passage the other day and I found, and this is just me personally, I thought that so many preachers that I had always heard preach took it out of context. And, my, and honestly, I had taken it out of the context. And my wife and I talked about this verse. And she was talking about how, you know, several... She believed that they weren't taken out of context. And I just thought that maybe they were stretching it a little bit. And as we talked about that verse, it didn't get angry. It didn't get heated. We just both kind of agreed that this wasn't important enough 
for us to get mad at each other over, right? I mean, it wasn't a doctrinal verse. It was just something silly. But we do talk about spiritual things. And what I notice in the church, and especially, especially, and you might not believe this, in fundamental Baptist circles, we are focusing on the very smallest things of the, of the Word of God. On whether your wife wears pants or what music you listen to. We're focusing and we preach hard and we nail those things. And yet evangelism goes totally overlooked. And I am not of the persuasion that my pastor can drink alcohol. And I don't really care what you think about that. There are churches that are doing it in the Metroplex and around this nation. So I don't think that you can just live loose and free and and get away with whatever you want to. But I know that me standing up here and harping on your personal principles and your personal convictions does nothing for you. But what we need to do as a church, as a fundamental Baptist church, is just understand God has minored on some things and majored on some things. And may we just rally behind the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He would give us power and boldness in our witnessing that we might be able to reach some lost souls. Make the main thing the main thing, man. Stop monitoring on little, uh, whether this person likes that song you like or, or does this thing you don't like, whether you go to the movies or not. Forget it, man. Go witness to someone. Go tell them what the Lord's done for you. If we're not careful, we're a bunch of lifeguards standing around the pool of eternity and we'll throw them in the deep end. What are you doing to change and make an impact in people's lives? We have to be effective with our lifestyle, but we have to tell. Testimony only goes so far. May we, may we live righteous lives so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. But may we be effective witnesses as well. May we just praise the Lord for what He's done in our own lives. May we be thankful for that. And may we, like so many before us, Stand up and become effective witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite the muzzling of this world, despite the, their, their constant pressure to shut up, may we just rally behind the Lord and win some lost souls for the Lord Jesus Christ.